from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the Centre for European Reform podcast. I'm Rosie Georgie, the CER's media coordinator, and you might have heard me on some of our other episodes. In this one, we're going to look at the consequences of the recent French presidential elections using the audio from an event that we held just after they took place. Our director, Charles Grant, moderated the discussion, and our speakers were Pascal Lamy, who is president of the Paris Peace Forum, Christine Ockrent, who's a political commentator and broadcast journalist, and Ben Haddad, who is the senior director of the Europe Centre at the Atlantic Council. In this episode, you're going to hear their takes on what Macron's re-election says about the French political landscape, the directions in which he's likely to take domestic and EU policy, and where he might be met with some resistance. Now, just to recap the final figures, Macron was re-elected with 58.5% of the vote in the second round. But perhaps more interesting are the figures from the first round. Macron won nearly 30% of the vote, far-right Marine Le Pen, roughly 23%, and hard-left Jean-Luc Mélenchon, 22%. To kick things off, here's Christine, with what these numbers showed us about France's domestic political landscape. Uh, Let us keep in mind the figures of the first round of our presidential election, because it showed that France has really crystallised into three blocks, uh, the central block, Macron's, uh, being uh, the highest, but with two very strong uh, extreme left and extreme right. And this division in French society was exactly why Pascal didn't want to rule out something which he called Obama syndrome. Here's Pascal. Uh, Macron uh, won a clear victory. Uh, with unclear consequences. And this is uh, one of the problems of the years to come. And uh, those of us who are, let's say, on the center-left side, uh, now uh, fear a sort of uh, Obama syndrome. Uh, One uh, mandate, two mandates with, let's say, reasonable politics whether you like them or not, and then boom, Trump. So this is something which uh, one needs to have in mind when you look at the big scene of uh, French uh, politics. Pascal illustrated his point about these divisions in French society, comparing the voting demographics of the results of the second round of these elections to the referendum of 1992, in France, which was on the ratification of the European Treaty of Maastricht. This treaty established the EU as we know it today and paved the way for the Euro. But in fact, only 51% of French voters actually approved its passing. For those of you who are old enough uh, to remember the Maastricht referendum uh, 30 years ago in 1992, Uh, which was uh, very uh, closely won by the uh, pro-1992 
referendum, the one that wanted to ratify this treaty. If you compare the map of the Maastricht Treaty 1992 and the map of the second round of the uh, presidential elections, uh, they are incredibly similar. If you look at geography, if you look at uh, level of revenue, if you look at level of education, if you look at uh, distance from uh, where you live to center towns, uh, and that says something of the real divisions that the French political system, like many others in Europe, has not properly factored in. So we know that the French political spectrum has now consolidated into three clear blocks, the extreme left and right, and the centre or rough centre, where Macron sits. As for the socialists and conservatives, Christine said that even for the 2017 election leading to Macron's first term, they were already out of the mix. Here's Christine. Just ask yourself why the extreme right and the extreme left have done so well. That's because the French conservatives and the French socialists are more or less brain dead and have been for many years. As as Pascal said, they they were already moribund in in 2017, which explains how, why uh, Macron was able to succeed. So now, uh, if they want to, to still survive, they have to get to work and, and have an offer to, to the voters. Uh, Macron cannot be responsible for, for the whole uh, political spectrum, uh, but of course he's taken advantage of that. Macron capitalised on what was a clear gap in the market, but Pascal said we couldn't hold him fully responsible for the breakdown of the French political system and structure. It was more complicated than that. Uh, the question of whether Macron has uh, exploded the French political system or whether Macron is the result of an explosion of the French political system is an open question. Uh, it's, uh, it's a chicken and egg, and I'm not sure uh, he's not for something in what's happening. Uh, but I also know that there are many good reasons why the centre-left and the centre-right crumbled the way they crumbled, uh, even without uh, any sort of pressure from Macron. So it's probably a combination of both. So this political climate makes France's forthcoming parliamentary elections next month all the more interesting. What happens in the, on the in mid-June? Uh, All those people who voted for Le Pen and for uh, Mélenchon will, of course, be intensely frustrated, even though these two uh, political parties may well get more seats, they are poorly uh, uh, rooted uh, in the country. Uh, They they don't have that many people, especially the far right, uh, able to run. And so there will be huge disappointment, uh, probably, uh, uh, from those voters who actually uh, claim their preference to them uh, on uh, the 10th of April on the first round. Now, those elections are the only chance for two really dying uh, political parties, the Socialist Party and the Conservatives, so it will be an infighting of within that same political crowd uh, who is actually rather 
disliked, if not despised, by those voters who have chosen to vote for, for the extreme. So parties have been buddying up to try to expand their electoral reach. Last week, we saw a left-wing coalition come together, where Melenchon's France Insoumise joined with the Greens, Socialists and Communists. It's safe to say we'll be keeping an eye on those elections and who wins over which voters. So there's the domestic backdrop. Now let's move on to how Macron's likely to pick up where he left off. Pascal said without doubt there'll be a strong emphasis on climate policy, both at home and in Europe. As far as his second mandate, he will insist on an area which he had not insisted a lot during his first mandate, uh, which is the ecological transition, which probably uh, will be a a backbone of his uh, economic, uh, social and environmental policy, a sort of a French uh, version of what the uh, EU adopted as uh, the Green Deal after the elections of uh, 2019. So uh, brace uh, for a higher attention to uh, the rhythm and the uh, conditions of the energy transition. And what about economics? Pascal said Macron's stance was a fairly unusual one. Macron uh, will run a uh, Macronian strange mix, like the one he's been running in his uh, first five years, although uh, with specific circumstances with the COVID crisis, he will run a very specific breed of supply-side measures, reforms, that increase the competitiveness of the French economy, uh, that reform uh, the labor market, uh, that reform the pension systems, on the one side, and on the other side, a rather uh, Keynesian uh, fiscal stance, uh, which is, again, a very specific uh, breed of his own, uh, which is uh, not common, uh, but which uh, he believes is the right thing to do. Uh, Alongside the slogan of his first electoral campaign, uh, you need uh, to uh, open, to free to liberate on the one side and you need to protect uh, the weaker part of the population uh, on the other side. So if that's the policy that characterizes Macron at home, what about Europe? Well, that's fundamental to his ambitions. Let's bring in Ben. Uh, One thing that has been really at the core of his political identity has been Europe, clearly, and has been the uh, um, defense of a robust Europe that could give itself the instruments, the tools to be able to assert its power on the world stage between the United States and China. Pascal highlighted the protectionist turn that the EU's trade policy had taken and said there was a reason why Europe was moving in the direction of the typical French viewpoint on trade. If you look at the agenda of the French uh, presidency, there is not much of a a pro-opening offensive Uh, trade uh, measure uh, on the agenda. Uh, What's on the agenda is all uh, on the defensive side. Uh, Digital, uh, CBAM, uh, anti-coercion instrument, uh, anti-subsidy instrument. Uh, 
and this is not just a welcome coincidence uh, between what the French public believes about trade and the open agenda, it's a sign of times. And by the way, if you look at the commission proposals in the area of trade, there is nothing in recent times that looks like a new multilateral uh, or bilateral or regional uh, trade opening agreement. So that's a sign of times. Ben echoed Pascal's views and built upon the tech element. It wasn't really noticed um, because of Ukraine, but just in the last few weeks, uh, the Digital Service Act and the Digital Markets Act, which are both big priorities when it comes to digital regulation and sovereignty, uh, were, um, were concluded at a European uh, level. Trade and tech are just two vehicles through which Macron wants to achieve his vision for a robust, resilient Europe. He's also set to look to reform the EU's fiscal rules, which would open the door for another recovery fund. But perhaps this theme of sovereignty or independence is most evident in his position on European defence. He's become closely associated with the term strategic autonomy, but Ben thought that this would be better understood, slightly rephrased. By the way, I think European sovereignty is probably a better term to really encompass what Macron wants to do at the European level than just strategic autonomy. Strategic autonomy has been often poorly translated or or misunderstood, uh, misexplained as well by the French to some of our partners, especially in Central and Eastern Europe. But so I should uh, re-explain maybe that uh, it has never meant uh, an independent Europe from the United States. And I think it's very clear uh, from France's participation to NATO reassurance in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, the uh, stepping up of presence in uh, countries like Romania or Estonia in, uh, in recent weeks, um, that this is, uh, this is mostly about giving Europeans the ability to, to uh, defend their security alone if needed, especially in a context where the United States is pivoting to Asia, which is, I think, something structural that the war in Ukraine will not uh, change and especially is signaling clearly its intention not to intervene on the behalf of Europeans in areas like uh, North Africa, the Middle East, the Mediterranean, like we had, or the Western Balkans for that matter, like we have seen in the 90s and the 2000s. So I think Macron and a lot others in Europe draw the conclusions that it's uh, both in the interest of Europeans, but of course of the United States as well. It's an asset for the United States to see Europeans stepping up, taking on more responsibility. So for Ben, it would be a win-win for Europe and the US if the EU were able to defend itself with greater independence from, from Washington and with greater capability. But at a time when we're acutely aware of the link between energy security or energy independence and national security, what does Macron want to do there? Ben touched on this too. Energy security is really core to the conversation right now. And here again, I think you have uh, uh, an area where France can play an interesting role as uh, with nuclear power and diversification of uh, uh, suppliers. It's much less dependent on Russian energy, Russian oil and gas than some of its partners uh, like uh, like Germany. So France has been trying to uh, cautiously push some of its partners towards more stringent sanctions on uh, on Russian energy. Uh, especially making the case for an embargo on uh, on Russian oil. Moving on to Macron's standing within Europe and the relationships that he has in Brussels, there's no doubt that he has a huge amount of clout at the European negotiating table. Christine considered the 
widespread interest in the French presidential elections and the endorsements Macron received from other EU political leaders, which really attested to the respect that others have for him as a key motor in the EU. I think it's about the first time that uh, any, the French presidential election has caught up so much interest and indeed anguish uh, throughout the continent and even across the channel. Uh, it is the first time that, uh, you know, Schultz, uh, Costa, the Portuguese, and Sanchez, the Spaniard, actually published an open letter, three social democrats, to see how important this election is. Uh, it is something which, uh, with all the emotional uh, wave uh, due to Ukraine, it is sort of crystallizing, I think, throughout the continent, uh, at least. She was also interested to see which relationships would shift and develop within the EU. And another point I'd like uh, uh, to make is that uh, indeed Macron has promised uh, that, uh, of course, he has learned from the mistakes he, he committed during the first mandate. And indeed, there will be, I believe, less uh, insistency on bilateral uh, uh, issues and another balance within Europe because uh, Mario Draghi in particular, uh, but also the Dutch, uh, Rutte, who was not particularly a particular fan of Macron, uh, I think there are new alliances, if you will, uh, that will, it will be very interesting to see how this plays out uh, in, in the forthcoming ordeals that we will all have to share. Uh, starting, of course, with economic ones. There was general consensus that Macron was going to work on improving dialogue with Central and Eastern EU member states, especially given the shift in dynamic in the Franco-German relationship, now that Angela Merkel has left office and Olaf Scholz and his coalition government are still finding their feet. And, and here we'll have to learn some of the lessons of the first one. I think in the first couple of years of his term, uh, Macron put a very strong emphasis on the bilateral relationship with Germany and especially the personal relationship with Chancellor Merkel, sometimes at the expense of building different kinds of ad hoc coalitions or relationships with other smaller countries. Um, I think we've also paid for 30 years of misunderstandings with Central and Eastern European countries where we'll have to really reinvest uh, heavily in the next few years. Charles agreed with Ben that renewing the relationship between France and Central and Eastern European member states might not be all that straightforward, especially given differences in opinion over many themes, just one of which is the relationship with the British and Macron's tough stance on them post-Brexit. Not all the Central Europeans agree with all the French ideas on the future of the EU, and certainly I, in my view there's been sometimes a blind spot in Paris in failing to take sufficient account of what the preferences of Central Europeans are. Not everybody in Paris has woken up to the fact that the EU enlarged in 2004. In particular, when it comes to issues, well, the rule of law issue obviously is not the whole of Central Europe, it's mainly Poland and Hungary. That's still a very difficult, uh, a difficult issue which has the potential to create lots of ructions and lots of sorrow in the EU uh, and possibly Hungary vetoing some decisions that require unanimity if the EU gets too tough with it. There's the migration issue, obviously, the Central Europeans have a different view of migration. There's, there's defence, as Ben mentioned, where at least there's some suspicion of French thinking on strategic autonomy 
in central parts of Central Europe. And there's even the British dimension where it's quite clearly because of the events in Ukraine, some Baltic and Central European countries and even some Nordics would be reluctant to throw the rule book at the British if the British renege on the Northern Ireland Protocol, which they may do very soon. But Ben said that some convergences of opinion were on the horizon too. Here he is again. I think you've seen really strong relationships being deepened between France and countries like Estonia, where uh, France has rotating troops, Romania just in the last few months, I think Slovakia and the Czech Republic, which have elected pro-European uh, governments, uh, Slovenia just recently, um, can be also really interesting partners. And as Charles mentioned, enlargement's likely to be a point of contention too. As a reminder, the candidate countries for EU membership, as it stands, are Albania, North Macedonia, Montenegro, Serbia and Turkey. Kosovo and Bosnia and Herzegovina are potential candidate countries, and now Ukraine has added its name to the list and sits with Georgia and Moldova under the category of Eastern Partnership countries. So regarding this debate, here's what Pascal said. Where there will be is probably on the rhythm and the possibilities of further enlargements, uh, which the French uh, are not in favour of. And this Ukraine situation for the moment is so emotional uh, that it's not the real terms of the debate. The French will remain uh, reluctant to any new enlargement. And the main reason for that is because of the elephant in the room of enlargement, uh, which is Turkey. And whatever new stream of negotiation uh, would start would immediately re activate uh, this issue of whether Turkey uh, is or not uh, to join the European Union, and uh, the French answer is uh, clearly uh, no. So just a quick asterisk here. Um, Since recording this discussion, we should say that on Monday, Macron proposed a new multi-tiered system of political association and cooperation with the EU to add to the debate on EU enlargement. We'll be following this closely, but it does just prove the point that the debate on enlargement and the thorn in Macron's side won't be going anywhere just yet and is something to watch for his second term. Finally, to close the discussion, Charles gave a brief summary of what was likely to work well for Macron and where the stumbling blocks, which we may or may not have touched upon, were likely to be. My concluding thought is most in most respects, Macron's victory is very good for Europe. Uh, I think that, you know, there will be some reform of fiscal rules. There might be a second recovery fund. There might be progress in European defence, strategic autonomy uh, and so on. Uh, And other respects are not so good. Enlargement, some of us regret the French blockage on that. Not sure that everything that the French want to do on industrial policy is entirely compatible with liberal economics. And of course, we haven't talked much about the British relationship, but Macron is the hardest of the hard when it comes to dealing with the UK. But that's another subject for another webinar on another day. There you have it. That's everything for now. Um, big thank you to our speakers, Charles, Ben, Pascal and Christine. And if you want to watch the full video, you can. That's on YouTube or our website. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Please let us know what you think. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Goodbye. 
Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.